Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer, and I will be your host. Anirvan Sen, welcome to Diplomacy and thank you for joining us today. You are the CEO and founder of Fifth Chrome and you're a strategy and leadership advisor with a dedicated focus on mergers and acquisitions, business insights, transformation, integration. And you have made a number of contributions with research, articles, lectures, podcasts. So you have a huge and heavy weight. Let me open up with one question, Anirvan, to get our conversation started. Who or what has made the person you are today? Oh boy, you start off right with a curveball question. I think one of the defining moments for me would be going back to when I was growing up as a child. I grew up in a culture that was not my native culture. So I was born in Delhi, but my parents, my ancestors came from Bengal. So there was a bit of a cultural difference. And what that meant was that I would think differently from the others. And I guess, you know, now I can say that while Steve Jobs had that famous ad, Apple had the famous ad, which is Think Different, it was part of my life since the beginning. And what that meant essentially was that I became very curious. I would always have the why questions, the how questions, the what questions. In fact, I remember my dad, you know, used to say, you know, I asked so many questions, you know, uh, and that was part of my nature, you know, and over the years, you know, I developed this as an incessant quest of knowledge. That That's kind of what defined me as I was growing up. On top of that, I realized that I can connect dots from different setups. Uh, you know, we call these cross-pollination, but that was what my strength over the years that I developed came from, which was my ability to think something from the business world, try and see what I've learned in the personal world, and then kind of connect, right? So just as I do experiments with my cooking, I would do experiments with sports area, with my studies, the same thing got transferred to this world. In other words, I would learn something from, let's say, the technology departments, use it in finance, and and, and that is what or who I am today. I guess that would be a good way of summarizing who I am and what do I do. I'd love to taste some of your food. I'm coming over next time. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that this curiosity, this willingness of, of asking those questions, is partly feeding into your latest report. So you just published a report, Change Management in Mergers and Acquisitions in M&A. So let us start with, with that one and try to explore a little bit some of the, the topics that we covered. In that one, you start with the premise that most companies operate almost exclusively on, on the basis of financial and legal due diligence in their M&A. And at the same time, you find that the premise is that people-centric components are neglected, while that's where actually the real transformational power of, of M&A is found. So how do you go about that? 
So what we found was, and I mentioned in our pre-conversation, my first tryst with M&A happened back in 1997 when one of the companies I used to work with at General Electric acquired another company. And literally into my second week in the job, I was asked to be part of that conversation. What I also found, you know, over the years about, you know, first, of course, first few years was all about learning, right? So this is how you do it. This is what you do, et cetera, et cetera. But then my incessant why questions, many of them started coming up and some of them could not be answered. And which is where it took me also to research and identify insights from people, et cetera. Now, what I found is that in the 20th century, majority of the mergers and acquisitions happened in the space that the companies were familiar with. So in other words, they would buy other companies that are in the same space, or they would buy a similar company, but another geography and play in that space, right? What we also found was this was largely dependent on the assets that a company had. And uh, that's where uh, the financial and the legal part comes in, saying, I want to acquire a company because either I want to expand into a new market or I want to consolidate my position in the industry or I want to acquire a new product or services or a portfolio. In all of the cases, in order to create a good business case and investment theses, you needed to put up a, I don't want to call it rosy, but let's say a good financial future. That literally drove most of the board meetings, most of the decision-making that took place at the transaction level, at the deal level, right? With the belief that we as an acquiring company would be able to acquire that and be able to grow together. You know, and I say with the belief because, hey, we have got the capabilities. We have been running our own organization for many years. And therefore, intrinsically, we should have the ability to acquire another company and just fold them in and should be able to manage those companies and grow together, right? We also know, especially from industry reports, that up to 80% of the mergers and acquisitions fail. Now, while there could be difference in opinion on what leads to the MA, and some of the aspects would point towards, let's say, economic conditions, uh, would talk about, let's say, we have paid too much of a price for the acquisition, and so on and so forth. Some of them did acknowledge that they had challenges with their integration design and the integration implementation, right? Now, interestingly, and this is over the last 10 years, I've been asking this question to dozens of practitioners, say, give me an example of one transaction where you have been successful in integrating the company, and yet you say you have overpaid for the transaction. Instead, majority of the times when actually people fail with their integration, they say, oh, we must have overpaid for this particular transaction. And again, being a challenger with a challenger attitude, I would ask that question and I would find that not a lot of people could give me a satisfactory answer about those examples. In parallel, because I'm primarily a business strategist, I started looking at best practices, good practices that companies follow. 
And I would invariably find, you know, whether it's uh, built to last or good to great company by, I don't want to mispronounce his name, but, you know, you know the person I'm talking about. Or if I were to look at, let's say, Blue Ocean Thinking, or if I were to look at some of the seminal work that was done by McKinsey, what you will find is that in all of them, invariably, the companies that have been successful, while they had a robust structure and approach, but there was always strong leadership in it. You know, and having come from the Jack Welch era of GE, we also saw what that being a great company is all about. You know, so given all of this, started making us question on some of the conventional practices that exist. Now, back to your question. So what we found is while in large number of cases in the 20th century, these M&A worked, but now as we are in the third decade, we find that a lot of the practices are still from the 20th century, but the targets are a lot more dependent on leadership, on talent. And as McKinsey had back in the late 90s, that said war for talent, that war has just accelerated over the last 10 years, okay? So combining all of this, we found that just having financial and legal and tax due diligence in many cases was not enough. And again, I'm not saying they're not important. They're absolutely important because it determines the acquisition value. But the integration value comes from leadership, people, culture, and organization structure. Okay, or in other words, I call it the capabilities of an organization. Now, when you get a company A with a capability A, acquire a company B with a capability B, what is going to be the combined capability? When we started dabbling into this, we started finding that a large number of acquisitions, uh, integrations that I was a part of, they just did some basic change management but in many cases struggled with people issues. Okay. Last year, because as as you pointed out, I run a podcast. So I started putting down questions that I wanted to ask my industry practitioners on change management. And that's like, hmm, okay. So we've got these questions. And then it kind of struck us that why don't we conduct a full-fledged research related to this. And when I say full-fledged research, we talk about insights. You know, we we talk about getting insights. Combining all of them, we said, okay, now in order to do a meaningful research, we said our starting point has to be on certain hypotheses. You know, so we've identified, and that's a part of the report, where we say that, by the way, some of the practices that exist is X, and these are likely to cause challenges or are constraints to the integration. That's what led us to the research. How do you describe the specific nature of change in M&A? Because you said you just said change management struggled because they didn't address people issues. So how do you define the specific nature of change in, in M&A? So it's also something that I teach in my training around change management. So within an organization, within an acquisition of an M&A, there are a large number of things that change. You know, some of them are structural in nature. Some of them are governance in nature. So in other words, this could be regulatory. Some of them are management style or management approach changes, right? So this is how do you 
measure performance of individuals? How do you manage policies and procedures, etc.? And then we have something called organizational change management that deals with people and leadership more on the softer skills, behavior, power skills. So what we found is whenever it was templatized and whenever it was tangible, organizations did a pretty decent job, reasonable job when it came to making those changes. You know, I need to introduce a new policy. Bang, you replace the old one with a new one. Or I need to do a change in organization structure. You know, here's the new organization structure. This person has been promoted. This team probably is going to be optimized, etc. But people are used to habits. People are used to ways of working. Some people call it culture. Some people call it the management practices. Some people call it habit. What we found is over the years, people become extremely reluctant to change, especially if they're enjoying the way they have been doing things. What that also means is, that without a definitive goal or a purpose laid out for them on why do they need to change, it creates a big challenge for a lot of people, in, especially in the acquired company. Okay, We also found that there was a bit of change fatigue in case of acquiring companies where they would be just given acquisitions after acquisitions to be integrated on top of their daily job, right? So if you're an HR person or a finance person or a supply chain person, you're like, oh, by the way, we've just acquired a company. Can you just fold it in, right? And then this is like, again, what's in it for me? What's the purpose? We understand the company's intent, but we don't necessarily understand what's in it for me. You know, if I need to do this extra work, how do I get compensated? And compensation does not have to be monetary. You know, there are different ways to manage that, right? That also leads to our hypothesis that people are just looked as a component of a large machinery, which essentially means that we would be able to switch them from one way of doing things to another without any resistance. You know, it's like robots, you program them to do some new stuff, they'll start doing it straight away. Whereas human beings are a lot more about why, but what's the benefit for me in the longer run? So so that's that's kind of what we found based on our initial pre-research and which then reflects in the questions that we put in and also the voice that we heard from our practitioners. In the report, you underline the need for the transformational skill set of leadership of an organization, probably, and an organizational culture to adapt. What exactly are you referring to? What does that mean? Sure. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take up corporate communication because that's a, a department, that's a function you're very familiar with. Typically, corporate communication is a round, top-down announcement kind of approach. So which means that the businesses are doing something, the employees need to be made aware. So it's usually a top-down approach with where, where information is shared, a press release is made, you know. So again, those are the kind of things. Now, between you and I, we know that a lot of corporate communication professionals have not been trained on the intricacies and nuances of a mergers and acquisition, especially integration, right? So how do you expect these people to deliver what is required for communication in an integration, right? So we find that there is a gap there. 
in many cases, we found that the corporate communication, they, they are doing their job as per what they believe is the best way of doing it. You know, and there's nothing wrong in that. The only problem is that without the right expertise or skills, you will struggle. The same one we found with people in other work streams, supply chain, finance, HR, many of them don't even have basic project management skills because it was never asked of them. But when it comes to transformation, you have multiple projects, sub-projects that are going on that needs to meet common deadlines. And how do you manage that? And on top of that, what we find is in the pre-deal stage, the number of people who are involved versus in the post-deal, the integration, we find a real sort of contrast on the numbers because during integration, majority of the people are part-timers unless it's a big, large integration. And even the fully dedicated people, the numbers are very few. I mean, and, and often we would say the ratio would be probably one is to five. You know, if five people are involved in the pre-deal stage, there's one, one integration manager in the post-deal, dedicated person. That, to me, sounds like that there is a, a bit of a challenge when it comes to transformation. But most importantly, if you look at the word transform, it is transformed. It's the, we had a form in the past, and we are moving to a new form, and therefore it needs to be transformed, right? People believe like changes is like an overnight switch. Transformation on the other side is a journey. You know, it spans weeks, if not months, and in some cases even years. Is that transformation in the sense of an event or the process making that difference? Because MA is very often seen as an event. Correct. So MA has this tendency of being marked with uh, flag posts or signposts along the way, right? And then there's this whole thing that's known as post merger integration, which happens after the company has been acquired, right? So it's clustered in one set. The reality is, and Willem Bridges, I follow Willem Bridges' transition model, where he describes, or their company described, there is an old way of doing things, there is a new beginning, and there's this whole section in between, which is the neutral zone. Now, for, let's say, travel and living policy, okay? Uh, one of my favorites. So, for example, in the company that I used to work for, let's say, my company is being acquired by another company. I used to fly business class wherever I fly. Okay. If the new company is a large corporate. They have very strict rules on who can fly business class versus not. Okay. Now, the policy, which is an event based, the policy changes on a certain date, you know, from 1st of October, the policy changes to the new one, right? But I have not subscribed to the policy. Therefore, I will try and find ways that I can circumvent these sort of things that I can still continue flying business class till somebody, you know, takes notice. So so this is where you expect a person who's doing the same job just to move from one benefit to another without necessarily being either told why, except for our company is being sold, or what's in it for me? So that's why it's a journey. <laughs> in my work, I talk about communications as a science and as an art. Correct. And it's interesting to see that, that we expect, especially in M&A, repetition to produce the same results. That's what we see. How do you assess or how do you think or what are the reasons for managers or for leadership to avoid the people issues? Because we said at the beginning, okay, they focus. You explained the historic reason for the focus on financial and, and, and legal aspects. Yes. And yet, even beyond M&A, people issues are something that most 
people have not been educated about, trained about. Why do we avoid people issues, despite knowing that they are the source for all of our problems? Yeah, <laughs> it, it, the same reason why we try and avoid even during our normal personal lives as well as professional lives. We always try to avoid people issues. And, and part of the reason is people issues often tend to be intangible. Now, as you know, that in the deal or the transaction uh, at the transaction stage, right from the strategy, everything gets defined in numbers, in in facts that are qualified and can be, you know, almost touched and felt. Whereas when it comes to people issues, uh, it, they tend to be very different. They tend to be unpredictable in many ways. They tend to be uncertain. So let me give you an example. Let's say if my company, again, going back to the travel and living, if my company gets acquired by another company, and I'm a small company in, let's say, somewhere in you know backwaters of Belgium or in Netherlands, all of a sudden get acquired by one of the largest companies, which is really respected, etc. I look at that as, hey, you know what, this is a great company, and I will have lots of great career opportunities that I couldn't get from my, okay? And then I don't mind losing some of my benefits, like the business class versus, you know, because I'm looking at the long-term picture where I see a lot more career opportunities, right? So at the same time, if I got acquired by another similar size companies and they essentially, I don't necessarily see purpose or incentive or whatever, I start questioning on the basis of the benefits that I get, why? And that's where, that's where I find that because the same person under two different circumstances is likely to behave differently. It makes it intangible. Not just that, we know that in a large number of acquisitions, there is a productivity dip because people get anxious when they hear about the announcement and, you know, typical the Kruger-Ross change curve. They go through that anger, bewilderment, et cetera, et cetera. That loss of productivity, right? Strangely enough, and I've seen dozens of investment theses I do not find even a single mention of loss of productivity in those documents. You know, what does that mean? Similarly, I also, there was one instance where I found a dip in revenue that the team had made an effort to say, what if the dip in revenue took place? So I saw just one instance where dip in revenue was taken into consideration, saying, okay, you know what? What if we started facing challenges and we're not able to ring fence the revenue? There's a dip in revenue. What do we do then, right? Majority of the others, like this is a rosy opportunity. This is a great opportunity. Lots of synergies on papers uh, that we should be able to exercise. Financial business case, brilliant. Everybody loves it. Let's go ahead and acquire that company, okay? That's what I was trying to highlight. Let me get back to one specific element that you mentioned at the very beginning as well, is the role of leadership throughout the transformation, throughout the change. What should leaders know? What is the one thing that leaders should know? I call it the vision leadership continuity. So typically, if when you acquire a company in your investment thesis, you talk about a strategy within which there is a role that MA is going to play, right? And you create a vision specifically around that MA part of things. Okay. This is quite strongly observed in the pre-deal stage. So people in the corporate development or business development, product management teams, they understand and they subscribe to a vision there. And which is why the process 
before the acquisition is quite well laid out and everybody kind of rallies around that vision call, okay? The moment it comes to post-acquisition integration, people move on. Corporate development guys are on to their next acquisition possibility. The CEOs believe that it can now be managed by the operations. How difficult can it be? You are a CFO. You should be able to fold in another CEO finance team or HR team, right? And then if you are a recruitment person, let's say if you are a recruitment team leader, you find I need to just add on to another recruitment team onto my existing team. The same way the accounting team needs to add another one, right? But all of a sudden, nobody is talking about vision anymore, okay? It becomes goals and objectives or it becomes operational, tactical stuff. What we also found is that companies that have been successful the CEOs have remained involved even in the post-acquisition deeply on how things are happening because it is not about taking hundreds of tactical steps that make a company great. It is how do you weave all of them together that gives them that high growth. And that's where we find, unfortunately, a lot of M&As start losing the sense of purpose. And, And without that vision leadership in place, it goes poof. So if I were to say, if I were to tell CEOs, I, I tell them the importance of continuing the vision, making sure that the vision gets, the sense of vision gets transferred to the next team in place, which is the post-merger integration, and they're able to run with the same purpose and with the same enthusiasm, energy levels, et cetera. And I'm going to cite a couple of examples here. Martin Luther King, okay, The reason why people remember Martin Luther King is because of his famous I Have a Dream speech, okay? It took him uh, more than 100 practices before he perfected the I Have a Dream speech, right? But if he had gone and said, oh, by the way, I need to get 1,000 people to start going to churches, that's an operational objective, right? And you don't get subscribers to that compared to I Have a Vision, People immediately understand that, yes, I want to be part of that. And because of that, I'm going to go to a church. Okay. So this is a great example of vision leadership. The other thing, of course, is when you have the CEO involved, you see that the other people feel that it is important to the company. And these are the people who had the context of why not what needs to be done, but why. And these are the people who can then articulate to the next team saying, this is why you need to do it. And Evan, I think we will have to go for a next podcast <laughs> on this one because because there are still so many things that I would like to discuss with you. I just, just yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think the other thing that I want to mention, and this is where, remember I was talking about be, me being the cross-pollinator. So, because I've been trained on Lean Six Sigma, you know, and I uh, spent many years of my life understanding those skills. One of the things that we talk about in Lean Six Sigma is something called Gemba Walk. Gemba Walk essentially means is that the top leaders of the company or the top leadership team of the company would go to the shop floor, have a conversation with uh, the people who are working on the shop floor and hear from them what do they think are areas of improvement or where they can make changes to the existing processes that can be more effective or efficient, right? 
the same principle should work also in the world of M&A or integration. But I find that it is extremely devoid of this approach, especially it's a handful of managers who make all the calls for everything that needs to be done, whereas the best ideas are, are sitting in the shop floor, are sitting in the operational teams. Nobody ever bothers to ask them any questions whatsoever. You know, And that's, that's the reason I'm right now, and I've, I haven't mentioned this, so I'm currently working on a book. It's called Waves Change Leadership in m and And Waves is an acronym, which stands for Winning Together, Aspirational, Visual Leadership, Everybody Counts, and sustainable culture. So that's WAVES, W-A-V-E-S. And that's where I am trying to highlight the importance of, if you want to get ideas, if you want to really achieve higher growth than normal, then you should be able to unlock the people and the leadership capabilities. That was one of my questions indeed on how do you get people involved because if this cannot be top-down, it has to be bottom-up or whatever, if that is still an appropriate approach. But how do you get the masses involved? Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So <laughs> this is inspiration. I'm losing track of all my cards and my, my questions that I had prepared. So Because I'm already thinking about how to involve and transform. But let me come to a conclusion here. Sure. <laughs> In the sake of time. So what I have taken down from our conversation would be at least, well, there is a lot, but there would be three things that strike me. So the one is really to put this transformational strength of M&A to become aware that this is not just a transaction. This is not just a one-day event. But this is a journey, and it is a journey that involves basically everything in the organization or in the two organizations that get together. The second one that I take with me is the very interesting approach of the strengthening the integration team. So while usually we would focus on having great deal pipeline and strong due diligence, where we have thousands of slides from financial, legal, environmental, social due diligence, anything you can do, getting a strong integration team by numbers, by experience, by complementary skill set is something that has not been put forward enough. And the third one, and I think that was what's also part of our earlier conversation, is this, is this leadership and vision continuity. I think you have been brilliant in spelling out why this vision needs to be there, not only as part of the, of the M&A event, but of a growth journey within the organization. And that is where the M&A or the acquisition should be part of anyway. So it's not about the acquisition. It is about growth or the development of the company. I like that one. Brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you've summed it up really well. And as I mentioned, a, a good to great. Jim Collins is the guy. And uh, there are numerous examples like this where by unlocking people and leadership, capabilities, companies have been really able to flourish. And the same also applies for the world of feminist. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I like the way you kind of summarized it in those three points. And Evan, I think we come to the end of this podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for joining us today. And looking forward to continued conversation offline, online, and together in the future. You're more than welcome to come along when you're in Brussels. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, Luis. And, and uh, the same uh, applies for you as well. Uh, we'd love to uh, 
welcome you to Amsterdam. But this has been a fun conversation. And honestly, the report just came out over the weekend and you're the first one that I'm talking about the report. So I'm glad that you sort of invited me to do this podcast with you. And even more convinced now that uh, the world needs to change their thinking and to transform their thinking. And once the mindset has transformed, there are no limits on what can you achieve. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website, www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.